Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring to you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What happens when we read scripture as the story of God's migrant peoples? How has the church both flourished and failed in embracing migrant communities? How does Catholic social teaching help us engage theologically with the lived experiences of migration? And how should the stories of migrants shape the life and thought of the church today. Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Anna Rowlands. Anna is St. Hilda Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice at Durham University. She teaches on political, moral and practical theology and also works closely with a number of leading faith-based charities. And our question today is, what is a theology of migration and how does it speak to Christians today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Anna Rowlands, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you. Glad to be here. Anna, you're Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice at Durham University. Tell us what that role involves, and, and in particular, how did you end up in this particular way of serving the Lord? Well, uh, it's a curious story. It's quite an unusual role. Um, and you, you've noticed that there are two words in the title that are significant, thought and practice. Um, and I actually wrote the job description for this role, but without ever intending to occupy the position. I thought that there should be a job that had an element of focus on, you know, kind of theory and really doing that work in relation to the Catholic social tradition, but also that was interested in communities of practice. I'm really engaged with those. So I have a very unusual job because it's split between academic teaching and research in the area of Catholic political and social thought. But 20% of my time, instead of being library monitor in the department or in charge of undergraduate students, I spend 20% of my time engaging with communities and organisations out there in the world from NGOs to groups of parliamentarians to local church groups right across the spectrum. So it's a very unusual hybrid role in academia that is kind of out there in the world, but also trying to do the stuff in the academy as well. The area we're exploring today is your areas of research and also applied practice in uh, migration and asylum and thinking theologically as well as acting responsibly in those areas. Perhaps you just tell us how your interest in that area kind of first came about and how it's developed over the years. Yeah, so in my background, I'm the product, I'm the grandchild of um, three Irish economic migrants who these days, I suppose, would be described as unskilled or low-skilled economic migrants. I think my grandparents were very skilled uh, in many ways, but um, not always those in which the labour market uh, recognises. So migration is my own family history, but economic migration um, from Ireland. So I grew up with a sense that we were a migrant family uh, in, in our background. And I suppose that didn't massively shape my academic life at all until I was working in Cambridge in the early 2000s at Westcott House, uh, training Anglican clergy. And there was a detention centre, an immigration, what was then called, ironically, a reception centre. 
that was based just outside Cambridge in an old army barracks. And I had this growing sense at the turn of the century that immigration, migration, asylum issues were just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that they were not going to be special interest areas that clergy who had a particular topical interest in these things would be engaging with, but rather these were things that were going to turn up at the vicarage door um, as realities and in church pews and, and were just really massive societal generational questions. So I decided to create a placement in the Immigration Reception Centre through the chaplain seat so that students could go on placement. And I thought to myself, well, you know, in relation to all the other placements I run in prisons and schools and elsewhere, um, I always go and, and explore them myself. So I put myself on a placement before I put any students on a placement for two weeks. And it just changed my life. So I sort of just was so confronted by the stories that I was hearing at that point. I would just sit with um, East African Christian refugees um, who had had walked across the desert, had come up through Europe, beaten and abused hideously in Greece and Italy in order to just get their papers and had ended up in this very dispiriting place of being detained in the UK, uh, about to be removed. And really with this sense that they'd suffered enormously and had very little hope that the journey seemed very futile. And the story that they told, their narrative of what happened to them was so clearly connected to every major geopolitical issue that was somehow written on their bodies in this most extraordinary and disturbing way. And I just started to think about who was thinking theologically about the kind of stories um, that I was hearing and who was acting to accompany uh, those on these journeys. And so I stopped the book that I was then writing and just sort of lost myself in a process of community organising involvement in the issues around trying to end detention of children and families for immigration purposes. But academically, I started to think about the issue. You talked about the need to think theologically about the stories that you were hearing back then, Anna. Perhaps go back to the original foundational theological stories that we all work with. And let's go back to, to kind of first principles and back to the Old Testament. Where might we look within the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible for stories that connect our faith with these absolutely crucial questions of migration that are current in the world today? You know, I think that you cannot read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in any other way than as a history of migrant peoples. You know, reading those texts is simply the witness, the reflection, the prose, the poetry of peoples who were migrant peoples and who were dealing with all the complexities of that. The scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible as a whole opens up this space of realising that migration on the one hand is something which God can call you to, uh, whether you like it or not. You can find yourself called into processes of migration. So migration is not necessarily pathological. On the other hand, there's also the forced displacements of those um, scriptures as well, which talk about the damage, the suffering, the harm, the loss, etc. But also the way God rests blessing, even in those contexts as well. So there are particular texts that I would turn to, but I would encourage us to see the whole of scripture as a kind of a thread that runs from Genesis all the way through to the New Testament to 1 Peter, where, by which stage we start to spiritualise that condition of the church being a migrant people but there is this witness you know there and it's it's there in the book of Ruth if you want to look for the ethical migrant called to to talk to the faithless people who've lost their way um so her you know her migrant voices you know God acting through her as messenger to somebody like Jeremiah who's technically the most detained character in the Old Testament you know he loses his mind 
um, as far as my reading of Jeremiah goes. You know, he gets to this place where he is detained, he's in the pit, he's in a place of absolute desperation. And that movement between poetry and prose in the book of Jeremiah is absolutely about what the reality of exile and being in the context of forced displacement um, does to people. So there's lots of ways in which we can look for injunctions to care for migrants and strangers, uh, rules about doing that. But equally, there are just these visceral stories of, you know, the call to migrate and exilic reality too. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing it right, Anna, is actually it's not a question of looking at individual stories in the Old Testament, but rather the Old Testament as a whole can be richly understood as a story of migration, both in terms of a call to migration and the realities of forced migration. So I guess that former category would be somebody like an Abraham who was called to migrate, called to travel. And then I guess we'd be looking at the exile when the when Jerusalem fell in 587 BC as a kind of an example of a, a forced migration with all the cost. And, and we read in Lamentations, among other places. Would that be a kind of accurate assessment of those two kind of themes? I think so. And, you know, to my mind, you know, the Old Testament is simply a history of migrant peoples. Um, it's their faith history. It's, it's their, you know, the literal history of events. Um, and it can be read. It's their textual literary history that emerges from that as well. Refugees have always written their refugeedom. Um, you know, there is this history of refugee literature. And I would say that the scriptures are part of the history of refugee literature. We're going to come on to the kind of implications, but let's just pause for a second there and say, you know, what, what might that mean for us reading the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible today, simply to recognise what you've said. This is, this is refugee literature that we're engaging with. Reading the book of Jeremiah, for example, which I've done in a number of settings, including with refugees um, in the Jesuit Refugee Service um, in London, it brought me back to the texture of the text itself and to refusing to too easily spiritualise it. You know, when you think about the events it records and the way it speaks of those, the literary form to capture the nature of the events and what's happening, there's an interaction there and a, a sort of a richness and a depth and a layeredness to those texts that I did not read in that way until I sat down and I read them with migrant communities. It changes the dimensions of the way in which you, you read scripture, both to see a kind of continuity that runs through it, to treat this as, as the literature and the tradition and the experience of migrant peoples without reducing it in a flat way to an ethics, but to read it in all its complexity and layeredness. It takes you back into the sort of the difficulty of the text as well, you know, co confronting something like Jeremiah and, and, and really starting to think about the state of Jeremiah's mental health. <laughs> to impose a very modern category on that book. You know, you cannot romanticise it once you really start to think about the conditions under which this prophecy is, is taking place and what it costs him. And then the extraordinary moment at the end where despite everything that's happened and a situation of potentially absolute hopelessness, he goes out and buys the field. Everybody else is fleeing and he buys the field and he buys it as if he will never see this himself the fruits of this but he buys it with this sense of an absolute trust in the intergenerational promise of a restoration to the land i find it moving to to think about what it would mean to inhabit the space that, that jeremiah must have been in if we're thinking about it in those terms you mentioned the um new testament and, and one peter in particular and this way in which you, i think you said that the language of migration or my, being a migrant people is kind of spiritualized. Is there anything else you want to offer in terms of how the New Testament takes the theme of, of a migrant people and kind of develops it, 
provides a, a gloss on it or a further commentary on that? How, in other words, how does it develop as we see the scriptures evolve? So, I mean, there's two uses sometimes that we make of this idea of spiritualizing something. And I think there's a good use and a bad use. So there's a, a form of spiritualizing scripture, which is basically to abstract it into something slightly romanticized and sentimentalized and take it away from its fleshiness and its difficulty. On the other hand, I think there's a good form of spiritualizing that goes on in, say, 1 Peter, where we get this language that we are to see ourselves as paracoy, as, as strangers, and, and there is this embracing of the language of strangerhood as the condition of the church itself. We are a migrant people in India on the way. So this notion of strangerhood, of pilgrim community, of never being fully settled, of embracing the unsettled condition as part of the spiritual identity of the church itself and a call of a way to live is, a, is in a sense an appropriate spiritualizing. And of course, what it also picks up from the Old Testament, which I suppose I didn't mention a minute ago, is how important in the Old Testament the idea of living out of an exilic memory is. That the whole point is to say to the people of Israel, do not forget your exile. Do not forget your experience. And it's when forgetfulness comes into the equation and a kind of complacency that comes with that, that the people of God lose their way. So there's this injunction to remember, to remember, to remember, because it forms you in the remembering, in the memory. And I think that almost one Peter for me picks up that. It's not just a spiritualizing of the condition of strangerhood. It's still an ongoing process of linking us to this command to remember and not to be forgetful. The other thing to say, of course, though, about one Peter and about the early church, you know, as these scriptures are being written, is that obviously the early church is also a migrant people sometimes welcome, sometimes not welcome in the context that they're taking the gospel out into. So it's not a pure spiritualizing of an older theme. It's a spiritualizing of an identity that some would have understood as a literal identity. I'm struck by that beginning to one Peter, you know, to the exiles of the dispersion in and then all the various places. And as you say, if it, you know, we can't accuse the writer of one Peter of, of taking a kind of bad spiritualistic approach, spiritualized approach, you, you know, when this had been their own the lived experience of the people to whom he was writing yeah i wonder if you could give a few examples as the church has digested that that experience and encounter with migrant literature that is there in the in the scriptures how have we seen the church engaging with the the questions of migration at kind of various points in its history well, I suppose just picking up where we left off, the first example is obviously the writing of the scriptures and the keeping of the scriptures, the, the custodianship of the scriptures um, in the early church happening amongst migrating peoples. I mean, that's just very obviously the tie, the tie up between the kind of formation of Christian community, the writing of Christian community, um, and the fact that that tradition is a live one that's been handed down to us is absolutely tied up with migrant peoples. It is the condition of the church and of our literature, our earliest literature. Obviously, the sanctuary tradition, which was not a Christian invention, um, Jewish cities of sanctuary and also in the classical world, in the ancient world, practices also of sanctuary traditions. But obviously, the early church bishops consciously chose to territorialise a Christian notion of sanctuary, giving protection within the buildings of the church. And that's a tradition that takes us right up to the knocker of the door on Durham Cathedral um, and contemporary sanctuary practices um, to prevent the removal of migrants in the US in particular, but also sanctuary um, cities and sanctuary movements here. So there's a kind of continuous history of that sanctuary tradition. I think that's important. Equally, you know, great texts like Augustine's City of God are written in the context of him processing 
um, the migration and the collapse of the Roman Empire, the migration into North Africa of huge numbers of people displaced by the collapse of the Roman Empire. So the condition of the writing of the City of God is, in a sense, is connected with that same history. So that there's a kind of constant echo of this through the great texts of the tradition. We ought also to name some of the counterexamples in truth as well, that um, the church's history has been bound up with harm um, and with being a, a cause of forced migration, not just a balm for those who migrate. I remember giving a paper a couple of years ago or giving a talk and a very eminent Jewish thinker was in the room. And he sort of said to me at the end, quite rightly, don't ever give a talk on migration and theology and not mention the role of the, of the church in the creation of ghettos and in, you know, in persecutions, in pogroms, etc. And I think that's an entirely fair challenge that, you know, the church has been, whether it was in Spain through forced conversions, whether it was it's through the, cre- the history of the creation of ghettos, there is a complicity, obviously, between the church and forms of forced migration. I have a colleague who works on the child migrant schemes, whereby churches across denominations in the UK were involved through the early 20th century and the mid 20th century in forcibly migrating children who had no choice and whose identities were often erased um, to Australia, Canada, um, Zimbabwe, etc., taken away from poor families, um, or sometimes they were genuinely orphans. But that history of child forced migration and the church's involvement in that is not pleasant. And it's a, it's a real challenge to us. So there is a counter history as well. And then I think, you know, the final example that, that we might give is perhaps the sort of more positively, you know, many of the religious orders in my own Catholic tradition were formed in response to the needs of migrating Christians to the so-called New World. So there is this incredible fruitfulness that comes from the church needing to respond to the migration of peoples in the, in the 19th and 20th century. And um, the establishment of schools, hospitals, etc. that are initiatives that come out of the church responding to the realities of migration. And that continues right up to the contemporary day. My work in the Middle East now on a project I've been involved with for four years, our Refugee Host Project, is connected with local humanitarianism on the ground by Muslim and Christian faith communities. Often faith communities are the local first responders. They're the people who have the long-term relationships, the networks, to be able to sustain responses, both in an emergency immediate sense, but also on a long-term basis. And we know now that refugeedom is, is very protracted. So the average time that somebody might spend in a refugee camp now is about 17 years of their life. The Palestinian communities that we've worked with in Lebanon over the last four years, they've been there since the 1950s. So three generations, they built an initial layer of their houses, a single story with no found it, proper foundations. And now those houses have seven stories and no daylight that gets through the narrow passages to the streets because the same generations of that family, new generations of that family now simply live built on layer, built on layer in those houses because there has been no um, resettlement and no solution for their situation. So I'm very interested in the role now of, of, of churches um, and other religious organisations um, in local humanitarian action on the ground. One of the things you've done is look at migration through the lens of Catholic social teaching. That is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about human dignity and the common good in society. And, and within that, one of the themes you've explored has been that of natural law. Can you just kind of explain what uh, is meant by when we talk about natural law? And, and in particular, how does natural law help us think about migration? OK, so there's probably two things I um, can say about this. One is my own slightly strange idiosyncratic use of natural law theory and then how the church has used natural law um, theory in its own teaching on migration. 
So sometimes Catholic social teaching is accused of being a bit wishy-washy. You know, it's all human dignity and the common good. And what does that mean, really? And how does it land in real terms? Well, interestingly, in relation to migration, you could not get more concrete in terms of the church's use of a natural law teaching. So if we assume that what the church means by natural law teaching is that creation is for the good, God's intention in creation is, is the rational good. And so it is possible within the universe to discern through the use of reason certain basic truths about human nature that allow us to survive and thrive. So the Catholic tradition teaches that we have a natural orientation towards certain goods as human beings, one of which would be to secure our own survival. It is a natural and good thing to want to survive, to want to be healthy, to want to live well. Also, natural law teaching along those lines would say that there is a natural search in the human person for God, natural desire and orientation towards the divine. There is a natural desire towards the forming of human relationships of love and creativity. And so there's a, there's a kind of list of the goods that human beings are seen to naturally pursue and wish to secure for themselves. So within Catholic social teaching and the papal tradition of teaching on migration, There's an emphasis on saying there is a natural right to have a stable political community that you live in. So the first natural right on migration is a right to remain, a right not to be displaced, because membership and rootedness, culture, identity, etc. are so important to us. And as Simone Weiss says, it tears at the soul to be forcibly uprooted. It's very different to choose to leave your context for a reason, but to be forcibly uprooted tears at the soul. So... That the first right, natural law right, is a right to remain. The second in the real world of conflict and division and the failure of political communities to ensure stability is a natural right to migrate. So there is an absolute natural right to migrate in the Catholic tradition if you cannot secure those goods, those natural law goods for yourself. And that's not just mere survival. That is a capacity to develop, to flourish, to become fully a human being alive. So the second is a right to migrate. The third is then a right to have that claim for migration and for political membership in a new community heard fairly in a just way. The fourth natural law principle is then, okay, well, that's fine. Does that mean a no borders world? And interestingly, the Catholic Church doesn't have a formal no borders policy. It would say the church is a no borders community. It does allow for some possibility that borders can contribute towards order, stability, cultural identity and the common good but only insofar as they provide for hospitality, protection and the universal human family and its responsibilities. So the first law is the law of fraternity, as the Pope says, it's the law of love. Every other law is a question of how it serves that or not. There's one final one I should mention, which goes a bit beyond some of the liberal accounts around migration, which is to say that you don't just have a right to membership of a political community, you have a right to full membership, which means a right to work, a right for political participation, such as voting rights, etc. So to allow somebody simply to abide in territory is not sufficient, because as a human being, you need to be able to be self-determining, autonomous, productive, and connected to other people. Now, I used this in my own curious way when I went to work with the Jesuit Refugee Service in London a couple of years ago, to explore in conversation with refugees living in destitution. So these are people who have had a very tricky path through the asylum process and currently are kind of stuck with no way forward. They have no right to any kind of public funds, not even the basic asylum funds uh, that exist in the UK. So they're living completely dependent on friends, charity and quite unstable arrangements. 
So I sat and had a conversation with a, with about 30 members of that community over a period of about 18 months. And we talked together about the basic goods that they had wished to pursue, they, they wished to pursue in their lives and how they had, even in the very difficult circumstances they were, they were constructing lives that enabled them to pursue those goods as much as possible. And indeed, as refugee communities to support each other by creating an air pocket in an otherwise incredibly hostile system where together they could facilitate and create some of those goods. We also talked together about what frustrates those goods. So I was using St. Augustine's idea that we seek the good, but also that evil is the privation of the good. And so what I did was I asked them, what, what are the forces, the structures, the realities that frustrate or prevent me from realising these basic goods? So that was my kind of natural law, empirical work. And, you know, out of that came, I mean, the things that are so basic that you would assume that they were common sense, that people seek to secure for themselves a capacity to survive, to thrive, to build relationship, but to be self-determining. Nobody wants to be dependent and dependency kills. Nobody wants to have to, to have to live a life on charity. So a combination of not wanting to be isolated and so much of the asylum system in the UK fragments and isolates people from community. So we want community as human beings, but we also want to be self-determining. We want a level of privacy, autonomy. One of the moments that was really striking to me was having a conversation with a woman who told me why public libraries matter so much to her. She sleeps on night buses around London as the safest way to spend the night rather than on, on the streets. And she told me that she would travel on night buses and try and sleep in intervals of half an hour at a time on different night buses. And then during the day, she'd find a public library to sit in. And I said, oh, why is it? Because it's a calm environment. Or, and she said, oh, it, it's as close as I get to privacy. Now, most of us think of public libraries as deeply public places, but for her, it was the closest that she got to privacy. And she talked about the total absence of privacy in her life and why that mattered to her as a good. And we, we take privacy as such a basic thing that we don't even reflect on it most of the time. But she was having to construct that good for herself in the most sort of proximate way she could. You talked about your interest in the work of faith communities among migrant peoples. How does this thinking, both the, 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 the tradition, but also the particular reflections on natural law that you've shared with us, how does that challenge and inspire the church's mission and practice? Yeah, that's a really good question. Again, just thinking about um, some of the work that I've done with the Jesuit Refugee Service, who are an international organisation, so thinking about their international operation. One of the things that they do is they always work on a small scale so that their work is structured always around accompaniment and accompaniment model. So they've often been, because they're very successful in one sense, pressured to scale up their work. And they refuse to do that because what they do is insist on having high quality personal relationships where, whereby that relationship is genuinely reciprocal and it's based on having time. When I then did the interviews in London and I said to the refugees in the London community, what, why does this, why do you come here? They run a day centre, so they come about 150 come once a week. Why do you come here? And they said, because here people call me by my name. They greet me when I arrive. They sit and they eat their food with me. In the other day centres, the staff eat their food separately and I feel humiliated. Here, the staff sit and they eat with us. So they call me by name. They, you know, we eat food together. And we are able to be involved and participate and volunteer in the organisation so I can keep alive my skills and my talents. And there's a space to reflect through prayer and to share our journeys together and to try and make meaning out of that. 
And I think that actually very often what church communities can provide, they can provide all sorts of things at scale. But what's often missing in other humanitarian endeavours is a context in which people are genuinely treated as dignified agents in their own lives. Um, So I think at one level, it's remembering who we are as a church, what our anthropology is, what our view of human nature and community is, and simply living out of that well. The other side is, you know, there are big challenges. And I think particularly um, that's around the churches being willing to be involved in challenging the economic structures that drive forced migration, the ecological dimensions of that, which are, are simply increasing, and also to talk about race which obviously is a, a, a more general cultural conversation, societal conversation at the moment, but the church has a desperate need to deal with its own politics of race um, around migration, which it, it does still have. And I think to challenge the tendency towards a certain paternalism that can be there. And the reality is that the politics of migration are also the politics of race. Um, we detain black migrants more than white migrants who are seen as much more acceptable um, and we scrutinise race uh, in a migration context in a, in a way that we don't in others. You've suggested how the church's understanding of what it is to be human should affect the way we behave and the way that we engage in mission. I wonder if I can kind of bring it back to you, if I can. You spoke about that encounter in the reception centre uh, and the way that you described it as a life-changing experience. In all the thinking, in all the work, in all the research that you've done over the years, how has this kind of informed your own experience of faith, your own discipleship? And how have those voices remained part of your ongoing walk with the Lord? So there's a, a small group of uh, refugees who uh, attend JRS who also are street evangelists at the weekend. And they met in an immigration detention centre. They were there for slightly different reasons, but they met in an immigration detention centre. And two of them had had quite dramatic conversion experiences in that context. And when they came out, they decided that they wanted to kind of give something back. They were talking to me about their reading and interpretation of Jeremiah 29. And they said, you know, we kind of realised that what matters is promise. What matters in the end is promise. And that's what gets you through. And the Home Office can't take that away. They can take your future away from you, but they can't take away promise. And what God says is, I have a plan for your welfare and not your harm. And it's a plan for a future with hope. And they said, we hold on to this and we feel that we should share this truth with other people. Anyway, as they were reflecting on this, they said, you know, But that plan has very unexpected endings. I don't know the ending to my story. And I have to live with the not knowing, the believing in that plan and the not knowing and the unexpectedness. And I think I've kind of inhabited that single conversation in a way, because for me, that was huge. I went back and did lots of reading on the biblical interpretation of that passage. And very few of them dealt with just how disconcerting this plan for our welfare and not our harm can be. And I felt like I'd had better biblical scholarship from a conversation with these three guys than I'd had from reading most of the biblical scholarship on Jeremiah 29 without wishing to cause offence. The other part of it is how quickly our minds move away from just how distressing lots of the reality is of people who are living in protracted refugeedom and how disconcerting that is if you do believe um, in the goodness of the world. And you do believe in a redemption that should have a form in this life as well as the next. And I've got a a poem that I could read for you. Now, this is a poem which is written by Yusuf um, Cosme, who is a Palestinian um, who grew up in Badawi camp in Lebanon, which is just outside Tripoli. And his family still live there. 
Um, his father died in the camp last year um, during the COVID crisis, as did a number of other members of his family. And this poem was written based on a wheelchair that he'd seen in a passage by the neighbour's house. And he entitled this poem, The Throne. No one has ever seen the bereaved mother. They arrived at night, bearing nothing but their cries. The father, the son, the wheelchair. In the picture, the order is merely an aesthetic thing, or more precisely, an echo of the bare survival of the extremities and the fall of the middle the disabled middle, the son, who was brought from Aleppo to die in the camp. A fistful of absences suffices for the absent ones. The father could not surrender the chair after surrendering the son to his death. But to ensure it stays in its place, he tied it tightly to the window railing. Like the Ayat al-Kursi, the throne verse, hung in my mother's room, the chair appears suspended between what is yet to be inscribed in time and the chasm, a tilting crucifix, the chair. That poem for me is powerful simply in telling the story, but also in the importance of the language of faith, to help make sense and find language for what is almost beyond language. And I think wrestling with both the grammar that faith gives us to speak of the things that are most difficult, I suppose, a, a willingness to stay with and be disconcerted by those things and challenged by them is, is kind of where I find myself. Anna Rowlands. Thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. 